We live inside a dream. Is that your intro? Yeah. All right. <laughs> All right. Uh, welcome to Stan and Dave Need uh, Wedding Dates. I am your host, Jeremy Schmidt, alongside my second in command, I'd say my the, the silver medal host of the, of the podcast. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, sir? Eric Keppel. <laughs> <laughs> Today we are covering... The Killing, an American crime drama television series that premiered on April 3rd, 2011 on AMC, based on the Danish television series, The Forby Delson. Jeremy, well, uh, did you watch, we were just supposed to watch the Stanley Kubrick film, not all three seasons of The Killing. <laughs> oh, fuck. <laughs> oh, no. You, you see, wasted a lot of time, I wasted dude. a lot of time. Um, great. Well, I guess... I guess I'll just have to piece together through the Wikipedia page what this other thing the killing is all about. Um, yeah, is uh, was that confusing to you at all that there's two things called the killing? <laughs> only in terms of like every single time I've tried to Google the movie The Killing, uh, you have to like. It, here's the process: you type in the killing, and then you realize that everything is about the AMC show. So then right. you add movie at the end of it. And <laughs> again. Oh, that's what you do. You add movie. Yes. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I just, um, I just, I just chose to believe there was nothing about this film on the internet at all. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there also isn't really like that much about this movie on the internet. Did you? Uh, before we talk about the movie, did you actually watch that that show, the AMC show? I, uh, I it's got it's got um, Scully, right? It's uh, <laughs> now it's uh, fucking uh, I one of the characters' name was Lyndon because it I remember it, uh, there was like a line in it like "You're my ride, Lyndon" or whatever. Oh, interesting. Um, I, what, what am I thinking of that had Scully in it? Well, Scully is uh. The X X Files. Well, right, but like the act, the actor who played Scully. Oh. Um, it was another like uh Netflix television show. Um, but anyways, yeah, no. So I, I guess I haven't, I haven't seen the killing. At all. Yeah. You can skip it. It's not. It's it's fine. It's not good. I, no, it's it's like okay. It's like very just like uh I I remember I was kind of into one or two of the seasons. Um it's set in Seattle, which is like kind of interesting, but Ah, uh, so yeah, the uh, the Windy yeah, City. The Windy uh yeah, that's what they call it, the Windy City. <laughs> uh Anyway, I'm recording here from Chicago where it will not stop raining. Oh, uh, great. Yeah, you know yeah. what? Also, same. Same over here in sunny Los Angeles. Not. It's not sunny at all. It's uh, it's raining a lot. Is it really? Yeah, and cold. It's like, I have my heaters turned on, my dude. That's fucked up. I know. It's, dude, you have no idea. It's so fucked up. I'm like fucking, what is going on right now? 
Um, I guess uh, climate change is uh, a lie. Yeah. Send your uh, send your fucking send donations to Jeremy right now. Yes, He's please probably, uh, sign up. Uh, go to patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy and please uh, uh, send us some donations. I need firewood. I need a jacket. I need yeah. the fall, Eric. That's that's what I was thinking of. The show is called The Fall. Oh, The Fall. Okay. And that has Jillian Anderson in it. So Okay. So I'm not I'm not crazy. Fun. There is a there is a crime drama starring Scully. All right. All cool. Right. <laughs> well, <laughs> now that we got that out of the way. Um is there any news we got to take care of before we jump into the uh I guess this is the th- this is the third Stanley Kubrick film, huh? This is the third Kubrick film we're talking about. Yeah. Uh, next week, we will be back to David Lynch talking about Dune. Oh, uh, doctor. Man. <laughs> very excited. Yeah. Uh, I'm also very excited to talk about this, this movie. Me too. Uh, as we'll discuss, we are like finally getting into like good kubrick territory i think so yeah um, this is this i yeah. would consider this to be good kubrick territory i mean this one has a criterion release so you know some people like it <laughs> yeah i will say if you're like just tuning in for this episode and you you missed the uh the killer's kiss one or the uh fear and desire one uh they were both very fun episodes. I actually think Killer's Kiss is like pretty good and worth watching if you're a Kubrick fan. Yeah. Uh, Fear and Desire sucks, but our ep- you can just listen to our episode and it's like funny and good and you'll like it's probably more entertaining than like watching that movie. I agree. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that um don't let don't let us disparaging the actual quality of the film uh, turn you shy you away from watch uh, listening to our episode because uh, we still exactly. keep the yucks rolling. Like we still pound out yucks like it's 1996. Yeah, I'm still I'm still aching from all the yucks I let out uh, mm-hmm. during that. Yeah, you know, belly it was a couple aching. weeks ago. Belly yeah. aching, really? Yeah, you're, you were <laughs> yeah. you were doubled over at one point. I'm glad you finally bought that Bluetooth headset mic so you can like freely just writhe in laughter the whole time we do the our show. Right, I was rolling. I was rolling on the floor, laughing literally <laughs> the whole time. Um, so yeah, uh, we also are doing a lot of like holiday themed episodes. So if you want to listen to those, you will have to sign up at the five dollar level on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. Yes. It's it's fun in there. It's fun in there. You know, like uh, but, but take don't just take our word for it. Uh, you know, sign up, see for yourself, or listen to one of the few uh, Patreon exclusive episodes that we've released for free here on the main feed. Yeah, I've been releasing a couple of previews, uh, and we are going to be talking about Gremlins, which is uh, very exciting. Um, That will be a Patreon episode. We've been covering Tales from the Crypt uh, all the way through, which is a blast. Uh, We just talked about our uh, favorite movies from from the past decade. Uh, All sorts of good shit over there on uh, patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy, and uh, like I said last time, you can always, I do this with Patreons a lot, actually, is you can like just sign up for like one month for five bucks, listen to everything. And, uh, if you don't like it, uh, you can bail, but you will like it. Yeah. So, you will like it. That is our guarantee to you. You can also bail if you know, maybe you're harder for cash. We know it's Christmas yes. time coming up. You need that $5 to sign someone else in your life that you love up for their own Patreon. We get it. 
but you know, yes. don't but don't sleep on these Patreon episodes, guys. They are oh, they're just like so good that it's not fair. It's right. not fair. It's not fair to other Patreons, really. It's almost like once you hear what we're like on a Patreon episode, you won't even want to listen to our free episodes anymore. Exactly. I've always felt like that's true. Yeah. I've always felt like that was the case. Yeah. In fact, I give 10% to these free episodes. To the Patreon episodes, 35%. Yeah, easily 35%. I would say once you go get on our Patreon, you won't ever want to hear us again. It's that good. You'll just you'll just log off the internet and 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 take a nap. It's, it's yeah. that good, ladies and gentlemen. So let's get into the killing just a wee bit, shall we? Yes. The killing is a 1956 film noir directed by Stanley Kubrick. What? Stanley mm. who? <laughs> I heard he needs a uh, a wedding date, Eric. He does. So does uh, da- Dave Lynch. Dave, old Dave Lynch. Yeah, yeah old Stan K and Dave Lynch. Um, <laughs> it's also produced by James B. Harris. I believe this is the first uh, one of Kubrick's films produced by James B. Harris, who would who would become his sort of like uh, producing partner for the next few films. Yes. I, I believe three. He, I believe. I, yeah, I believe he f- produced up through Lolita, right? Or yeah, maybe, uh, yeah, maybe something Which, like that. By the way, hey, Jeremy, I've started my my reading. I, I I said earlier on the podcast that I'll try and read as much of the source material as I can. Great. Uh, Jesus Christ, I'm working my way through Lolita right now and uh, can't wait to talk about it. Uh, it's a fucking... It's hard to get through. Oh, really? Okay. It's yeah. really difficult. It's, it's difficult. And, and the reason is because you have to take too many J.O. breaks or what? <laughs> If by J-O, you mean jailing uh, <laughs> some word that starts with O that yeah. Taking implies them to that jail. I'm sending myself to jail, yes. Yes. Um, so James B. Harris, yes, he 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 helped produce um, Paths of Glory, this film, and Lolita. So that is a, that mm-hmm. is a, that is a healthy helping of Kubrick there. Um, that's, a, that's a nice yeah. hot dose of Kubrick. James B. Harris, who I believe has since... Um, Wow, still alive, as far as Shit. IMDb is concerned. Born in 1928 and still alive. Um, I'm interested to hear how their partnership ends because they like started a production company, right? Is that yes, Kubrick and Harris? Yeah. Uh, okay. So I think that is that is their production company. At least that's what's on the uh, or I'm sorry, Harris Kubrick Pictures Corporation. Okay. That is their um their moniker that they would use for the next three films. I think I don't know if they're if they're um. I don't think they end particular. From what I'm recalling, I don't think their relationship ends in any kind of way that's like dramatic or anything. I think what happens is after um, Lolita, Kubrick gets a chance to do uh, Spartacus, which mm. put throws okay. him into the the big the big the big leagues, so to speak. Um, it's weird to think of Kubrick ever not being in the big leagues. But once upon a time, he was not. I'm actually wrong about that. Spartacus comes before Lolita, so I guess oh. he he does take a uh, he does take like a, a a brief break to do like a super big budget Hollywood picture, and then goes back yeah. to something a little bit more controversial. Spartacus, by the way, is like to give you some frame of reference. That would be like like directing I don't know like Spider Man or something. 
back yeah. in the sixties. It's like a huge huh. production with like a cast that is like Kirk Douglas, Lawrence Olivier, Charles Lawton, you know, like yeah. uh, some real heavy hitters at the time. It sounds like it's like Kubrick's Dune is like yes. Spartacus. Except I think that unlike Dune, Spartacus was like critically acclaimed and Oscar yeah. winning. Um, yeah. I can't wait to talk and, about that episode too, yeah. because th- we're going to get to talk about Dalton Trumbo in that episode. And that's going to be a lot of fun. So uh, the, the film that we're covering today though, the killing is uh based on the uh, novel Clean Break by Lionel White. So could this, not find it. Yeah. Uh, I, I, could I not wonder, pro- procure a copy. Have you, did you look through like Amazon and stuff and they're just like, no. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the drama stars Sterling Hayden, Colleen Gray, Vince Edwards, and features Mary Windsor, Alicia Cook Jr., J.C. Flippin, and Timothy Carey. The only actor I really recognize from um, from anything else that I can think of is Sterling Hayden. Um, he is the star of the Asphalt Jungle. He has a, a very um, iconic part in the movie The Godfather. Did you recognize Sterling Hayden going into this, Eric? I didn't. I, I didn't recognize him, but yeah, I, I read a little bit about about him. Yeah, um, he's yeah. he's got a a very specific, peculiar manner about him. I think that really works for this film and other films. But like, yeah, he's he's like he's like kind of like a second rate Humphrey Bogart or something. He's He's, sure. He's probably cheaper than the, that than those than those bigger names, but you know, just as uh, can carry just as much gravitas as they say in the industry, Eric. Gravitas. Yeah. That's um, how I describe you to people, by the way, when they <laughs> when they ask about you. I'm like, you know, Humphrey Bogart. He's kind of like a lesser version of that. Like way lesser version of that guy. <laughs> um, yeah, and in color. And <laughs> yeah. Um. So, uh, this film. I guess uh, performed pretty poorly in the box office uh, and uh, failing to secure a proper release across the United States. And it was only at the last minute that it was promoted as a second feature to pa- to Bandito. Bandito. Yeah. Which I'm kind of curious to watch Bandito. I know nothing about it, but right. I just, just yeah. the name of it and the fact that it's a 1950s movie called Bandito. With an exclamation point at the end. Yes. Um, yeah. Good. This film didn't make any money, which you know, I, I don't know. It's it's really it's really tough. Like, I'm not a like a 1950s film scholar, so I don't know what audience were like ra- audiences were like raging for back in the I 50s. Know. Yeah, but I guess it wasn't this, which is crazy because this to me feels a lot more watchable than maybe some other films I've seen from the 50s. Yeah, and it has like a formula of something that would do well right now. Like, yeah. I, I was kind of thinking about like. Uh, you know, it's kind of like a like not really, but kind of like an Ocean's Eleven yeah. kind of like heisty kind of thing. Uh, I was thinking the exact same yeah. thing. Yeah, it, it's it's got like a it's like if the cast of Ocean's Eleven were bad people. <laughs> it's yeah, kind of like what how you would sell this movie today. Um, and yeah. I believe I read. Uh, I don't know if you were going to get to this, but I believe I read that Tarantino was really influenced by this. Oh man! No. Oh yeah, for sure. There's a, a lot of people were, were influenced by this film. It is a not a comedy of errors, but like a drama of errors. I don't know if that's a thing, but it's like it is totally. Oh, and the Coen Brothers were really influenced by the oh, okay. as well. Yeah, uh, and you can tell that in their work. It's like it's like a crime 
heist drama gone mm. gone sideways. And there's also like right. a colorful cast of characters. So yes. it's it and, seems very apropos that that would have inspired someone like Tarantino or, or specifically the Coen brothers. I think the Coen brothers too, like you can really get a sense for like, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, Lady Killers or, mm-hmm. you know, Intolerable yep. Cruelty, but some of their more wacky, zanier crime uh, comedies all, tends to have like a formula similar to this where it's like, there's the brutish oaf that they need and the fucking guy who works on the inside and the charismatic yeah. leader. And, you know, it's like, it's like building your team kind of, kind of has the same formula each and every time a little bit. Yeah. Um, the guy that's willing to assassinate a horse. Yeah. The, the back, the backwoods, like a uh, hick guy who's, who's yeah. super violent, but like, a genius at like fucking uh, <laughs> uh, gizmos or whatever. Yeah, um, which gizmos? Stay tuned for our uh, our uh, yeah <laughs> Gremlins episode. Speaking of gizmos, uh, Kirk Douglas was so impressed with this film that he sought out the director for his next project, Paths of huh. Glory. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, so that's gonna be a fun one that we're gonna get to talk about uh, on the next Kubrick episode i believe this that mm-hmm. yeah passive glory comes next um uh sterling hayden was paid forty thousand dollars for his lead role um hmm. and kubrick took no fee as a director i'm wondering like what he's doing uh at this point because he's his last two films he's borrowed money from people or just received money from wealthy uh family members and whatnot yeah. This one he finally like doesn't have to pay for it, but he's not taking a fee. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, cuz we know that like like David Lynch uh between Eraserhead and um The Elephant Man was like working as a roofer, which is like I would imagine one of the more like grueling physical labor uh jobs. Yeah, but, but a freak like Lynch I bet loved it, you know? Yeah, he was into it. I bet he was into it. Also uh Stephen Wright, I believe, worked as a roofer, and Jeffrey Epstein. At oh my was, gosh! As a roofer. That's <laughs> insane, and you know the connection there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. I was, I was hoping you knew. Uh, so yeah, the narration that's in the film, which is, I want to say, one of the more weaker elements of the film. Um, yeah. I don't like this narration, but an interesting factoid about it is that Stanley Kubrick also hated the idea. And oh. he thus made it much. He made much of the information that the narrator provides false or mistaken. Okay. And I That's didn't really pick up on that uh, during my my. I guess this is actually only my only my second uh, viewing of the film. But I guess if you listen closely to that narration, it is lying to you. Which is interesting. Yeah, kind of I interesting. did not notice that at all. I will say this is the first Kubrick movie where. No uh, issues with the audio whatsoever for me. Right. Yeah. No. No audio <laughs> issues at all. No glaring audio problems. Um. Other than that, there is narration, and it it fucking sucks. And like, yeah, this will be, I think, yeah. the last film that has narration from Stanley Kubrick. And like, even in more esoteric films like Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, you just don't need narration. You rarely ever need narration unless you're making Goodfellas or adaptation. You don't need it. Um. So, uh. Stanley Kubrick is also a chess player. Did you know this about him? I did know that about him. Yeah. He's a chessman. He's a, chess pl- he's a chessman. He's actually quite good at chess to the point where I believe he like 
would later like win over um, George C. Scott to be in Doctor Strangelove by beating him at chess. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Like, uh, yeah, he's he's really fucking good at it. Uh, also, oh, and and I'm, I mean, I br- I bring that up because there's like a lot of chess in this film. There's like literally people playing chess in the place where Sterling Hayden meets the Russian guy. Um, we. I I knew going into this that Kubrick has like directed a lot of movies, but I'm just now realizing like how big his like filmography is. Like we have so much time until we're talking about Doctor Strangelove yet. Oh yeah, I know. Which, yeah. Before this podcast, I just considered to be like, oh, that's like early early Kubrick. Yeah, and it is early it's, Kubrick, which is insane to think yeah. about. And it's crazy because his filmography is so huge, even though he famously didn't make a lot of films. Like, something he's known for is taking his time and not actually producing a lot of actual films. Yeah, but, it seems like he got like more and more selective, and uh, his process took longer and longer over time. I think so. I think that's probably safe to say. Uh, this is also the film debut for Rodney Dangerfield. Hey, can I get a little respect? I don't Where? think so, because he's an extra in the film. <laughs> oh, he's just an... Okay, because I was going to say, I don't remember seeing uh, seeing Dangerfield in there. Yeah, he appears as an extra in the racetrack fight scene. When the fight is shown for the first time, he's at the end of the bar. A clearer shot of him doing a characteristic double take occurs when two cops <laughs> come out of the door to the stairwell nice. to the safe room with Sterling Hayden next to it, watching the fight slash distraction develop. Uh, that's that's pretty fun. Uh, Dangerfield, personal hero of mine. Um, I also get no respect. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then you know it goes on and on and on with wonderful facts and trivia about the film, which you can look up some other time. I guess yeah. I'll end it out by saying this is included on Roger Ebert's great movies list. And you know what, Eric? My, one of my one of my goals of this podcast is uh, I will make a uh, Roger Ebert fan out of you. Yet I believe uh, that okay is, that is one of my goals. I'm going I'm going to uh, win you over on the idea of Roger Ebert. Because I mean I'm not not a Roger Ebert fan. I just don't like pay attention to to reviews and stuff enough to. Why? What? What differentiates uh, Ebert from uh, any other film critic? Honestly, I think it's just that he was so good. He's just—he's just such a good writer. He would often write um, his film reviews, not like not so much like you would see a review today, but like he would. It, it felt like every piece, every review piece that he would construct was its own like beautiful piece of art that you could like look back mm. on as like a time capsule for a lot of uh, the films that he wrote about. He was just like really prolific in what he did. Um, he was super fucking famous in the nineties. He, the whole idea of thumbs up, thumbs down like comes from Roger Ebert and Sis- Gene Siskel. I think that also like he's a huge player in like the seventies film mo- movement in like uh, America, like the resurgence of the auteur and stuff. Like he came up with the guys like Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola and sort of like helped shape like that whole decade of film. And on top right. of that, he's also a director himself. He like, um, it's just a huge lover of film in a way. It'd be like if, if it'd be like kind of if like Tarantino was a film critic instead of a director. Like just like the amount of knowledge that this guy has is like pretty crazy. He was also like really close friends with people like Robert Altman and um, 
and Scorsese and guys like that. He's he's a uh, he's an interesting fellow. Uh, his the documentary about him is also really good, where it like kind of chronicles the end of his life as he has like a like a throat cancer, I believe. Oh, he kind of died a horrible death, but um, did yeah. he have popcorn lung? No, I don't think so. <laughs> uh, uh, thank goodness. So uh, let's dive into the plot, shall we? I think we're. I think we're uh, all all cleaned I've up. I've got my it, flippers on. Unless you snorkel ha- is attached. Snorkel. Do you have any uh, any film memories from 1956 that you want to share? Any memories at all? 56. Uh, hmm. I think I was pretty much. You know, I was when 56. I was more into uh, the film The Ten Commandments. Which sure. Was my, was what I was into. Yeah, uh, I will say that some of the films that came came out in uh, 1956 are uh, stuff like The King and I, Around the World in 80 Days, um, the film, uh, The Rainmaker. Oh, Forbidden Planet comes out in 1956. Uh, you know, The Man Who Knew Too Much. Okay. The Searchers? This is not a bad year. Oh, Godzilla. That's a great movie. Yeah, The Ten Commandments. You're right about that. Um, this isn't a bad year for film necessarily, but I will say that the studios, I think, are at this point beginning to lose money. I believe this is like the tail end of like the big Hollywood fucking boom of the 50s, and uh, the 60s would yield like a lot less uh, financial success for for them there is a film called please murder me (laughs) i like the name of that title (laughs) uh i don't know what it's about at all but i just love that it's called please murder me okay so that's sort of like uh the climate that we're in where a lot of musicals are popular right now so uh jonathan clay first of all we open on uh some narration and like some shots of uh, a horse track yep right and uh, we have our uh, our our guy. He's walking around. Uh, the narrator is kind of explaining what he's doing, which is he's betting on all the horses five dollars. And I guess he's like doing some reconnaissance, right? He's like making notes, and this information is going to play into the heist later. Yes, uh, making a list, checking it twice. Yes, et he is Santa Claus. He's the he's the titular Santa Claus of the heist group. Every heist group needs yep. one Santa Claus. Um, what did you think of this opening? I liked it. I was intrigued. I like the uh, I like the horse racing shots. Actually, yeah, uh, it's fun to see that in black and white. But yeah, I don't know. I've been to like horse race tracks before, and it uh, seemed like what <laughs> this was. Yeah, uh, it's it's like a funny. It's a really funny uh, atmosphere. Uh, I feel like hor- like race tracks are kind of like um, fucking like airports in a way where you just see like every kind of person there. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, it's it's weird. But but yeah, no, I uh, I was intrigued. Yeah, I thought like, I, I also think in this opening you get the first like beautiful tracking shot. So this film, I'm going to go ahead and just like spoil a a. a a big part of the technical things that I want to talk about with the killing. This film is like Mm. known for its tracking shots. 
you notice that there's like a lot of scenes where people are like walking and moving yeah. through in like tight and in, in like enclosed spaces. Yeah. And this is when Kubrick started lo- uh, longboarding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he 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 started setting up his camera on his longboard, uh, <laughs> taking off his shoes so he yeah. got better balance. Um, but yeah, no, there's the uh, there's that first like really nice tracking shot, I guess dolly shot, whatever you want to call it, um, that kind of sweeps through the very empty horse racing lobby, mm-hmm. and then you see the cop, and there's the guy sweeping up in the background. So you get a lot of cool depth at the same time as you get a lot of uh as you get that cool movement that that uh you know i don't know it looks really nice i i don't even know if that's necessarily i I, it becomes a big trademark of kubrick's filmmaking style later but here we're still pretty early so it's just like the one cool trick he kind of does other than like beautiful photography which he's already sort of known for anyway right so then we cut to johnny clay um that's sterling hayden he is a veteran criminal planning on one last heist before settling down and marrying Faye, Colleen Gray. Um, I love this kind of intro to Johnny. I thought it was uh, I thought it was pretty fun. He's like uh, such a smooth talker, and he really. I, what I liked about him too is that like his relationship with Colleen Gray. There's like no question he like really loves this this girl, uh, who herself yeah. describes herself as being really stupid and ugly. <laughs> so yeah. Um, very interesting. I also love like lines she says to him, like, "I'll do anything you want, Johnny. I'll believe anything you say. I've always believed everything you said." <laughs> it's like the so yeah. insane. <laughs> the dialogue in this movie is very good. Yeah, uh, it's 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 almost like parody of itself a little bit. Yeah, but I think, but I, it it's it's pretty genuine. I think too. Like it's it's trying to be like, I don't think it's trying to be funny that often. No. Uh, I do. Li- I also like the visual. I just like the visual of like a man in in like a white collared shirt, like drinking a beer. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, just kind of like that's good loose. stuff. That's yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. Uh, he plans to steal two million dollars from the money counting room of a racetrack during a featured mm-hmm. race. Uh, he assembles a team consisting of a corrupt cop, Ted DeCorsia. A betting window teller, Elijah Cook Jr., to gain access to the back room. A sharpshooter, Timothy Carey, to shoot the favorite horse during the race to distract the crowd. And a wrestler, Cola Quariani, to provide another distraction by provoking a fight at the at the track bar. And, of course, there's the track bartender, Joe, Joe Sawyer. So we kind of get a little, like, vignettes of every single one of these characters within, I'd say, the first 30 minutes of the film. Um, the corrupt cop, Ted DeCorsia. Uh, what do you think of this guy? Um, so this is when we're at the, uh, that fucking great scene where they're all like smoking around the table and like talking and drinking. And yeah. Shit. I think we see, I see, I think we see the corrupt cop a little bit earlier. Like he meets somebody at a restaurant. Oh yes. Right. Yeah. And I like that. I like that shot too. Cause it, or I like that, that scene too, how it's lit by like lamps really yeah. well i I, but, uh, I i can't really remember this guy's actual name like the cop's name in the film but uh i i do think that he looks to me a little bit too much like sterling hayden and i got them confused mm. a couple times like yeah i got some of these guys confused <laughs> yeah my brain i'm i have like a bad brain when it comes to uh, i think it almost is like the as simple as because it's in black and white it's harder for me to like pick out who is who 
but oh, for yeah, sure. I had the same thing going on. Yeah, um, I think that uh, in black and white, a lot of like, I don't know, a lot of like people look the same to me. So, it, it especially like these early films, like everyone just kind of looked very similar. Uh, so I the the corrupt cop is like fine. I I believe he is the uh, is he the guy who has the like sick wife, or is that the track bartender? That might be the bartender. I think that's the yeah. I think you're right. That might be the bartender. bartender. Okay, so um, the next character is the uh, window teller who is I think he's he's a a pretty big deal in the film. Uh, we should probably talk yeah. about him. His introduction is yes. really funny because he has the wife, Sherry, Mary Sherry, Windsor. Sherry's awesome. Yeah, she's Sher- my favorite character in this. Sherry's sure. written so well. Like, she's so fucking mean. Like, every line of hers is like a beautiful punchline. Her lines are great. She's like a classic, like, femme fatale sort of like uh, character in these in these old old movies. Yeah. She's great. Yeah, she's super mean. Like at one point he's like, "Oh man, I'm starving. I wish I had dinner." She's like, "Oh yeah, well, don't you smell it? There's like uh this. I got this. Oh, I got yeah. steaks. I got this." He's like, "No, I don't smell nothing, Sherry." Like he's such an idiot. And then she's like, "Oh, it's cuz I haven't bought any it yet. It's still down at the supermarket." And he's like, "Oh, why?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And like I I don't know like if if she's really that much bigger than him in real life, but like they make him look so tiny in comparison to her. I know. And it's so yeah. funny. At one point, like they go to embrace this is a little bit later on and he goes to hug her and he just looks like a little kid hugging his mom. Like it's so, it's so funny. Just the, the, the size dynamic between them. But I also like, um, I feel like every sort of noir heist film needs a guy like this. Like the little like yeah. squawky, squealy, mousy sort of guy that you know you're going to get busted because you had this guy in your crew. That's sort of right. Um, okay. So then we have the sharpshooter, Timothy Carey. So we meet him at his, uh, little like backwoods shack place that he's, he's, uh, kind of like, uh, got a little private area where you can just like shoot firearms anytime he wants into his yard. He's holding a dog, I believe in this, in this first shot. Yes. We see him. Yeah. yeah. He's also like got a really dog. strange delivery. Like, on his lines. It's not exactly an accent. It might be an accent, but it almost seems like more like a speech impediment. Yeah. I noticed that too. And I couldn't put my finger on, uh, what exactly it was, but yeah, I I just kept screaming. What's wrong with this idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and then maybe one of my favorite characters, I think is this wrestler, uh, the big Russian guy who's like teaching people how to play chess downtown somewhere. Um, yeah, what do you think of this guy? Pretty hulky, uh, beefy, beefy boy. He's the bald guy, right? Yeah, the bald guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's great. Um, and, then, um, and then you have the track bartender Joe Sawyer, who I I believe he has the sick wife. So he's the most sad of the crew. He has the like the saddest story where he's like, "It's okay, honey. We'll get you doctors soon. Doctors will come fix you all up. I just got to go make one last, do one last job. <laughs> one last job. Yeah." Poor guy. So George Petey, the teller, tells his wife Sherry about the impending robbery. Sherry is bitter at George for not delivering on the promises of wealth he once made her. So George hopes telling her about the robbery will placate and and impress her. Sherry does not believe him at first. After learning that the robbery is real, she enlists her lover, 
Val Cannon <laughs> to steal the money from George and his associates. Um, I, I love how it, it, there's like this scene of, of George being pathetic with his wife, Sherry. And then there's like the mirror scene immediately after of Sherry being pathetic with this guy, Val. Right. Yeah. yeah. Were you horny for Val at any point or, or what was your thoughts on him? No, just the horses. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So, um, the Wikipedia skips kind of way ahead to the heist. Um, so is, is there anything else you want to like talk about before we get into the actual heist of the, of the film? Is there anything else worth sort of mentioning? I thought there was a scene between, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, the old, the older guy we see at the beginning, sort of like making all the notes. He kind of backs them. He's like the money guy. He, um, yeah, yeah. There's a weird scene between him and and Sterling Hayden where he's kind of like trying to almost convince him to not do the robbery. He's like laying down in bed, and Sterling Hayden's sort of like sitting on the bedside with him, and he's like, "Come on, uh, Johnny, we can get out of town, you and I. Start over." Right. And he kind of mentions like maybe he shouldn't marry that woman either and it was it, like in this scene i wasn't sure if they were trying to do like maybe um that older man was like sort of in love with johnny i didn't know oh. if, i didn't know if that yeah. was the vibe or if it was just he's trying to protect him he does start it out by saying like i consider you to be a son to me but th- I, I i was also getting like he might be in love with him vibes i don't know if you if you got that no, I didn't really get that yeah. too much. It felt more like protective to me, but um, yeah, yeah. So, um, the heist is successful, <laughs> although <laughs> the sharpshooter is shot and killed by a security guard after he runs over a horseshoe that had been offered to him for good luck, but was thrown to the ground and has a flat tire on his car. <laughs> That is the sentence via Wikipedia. Do we want to fill in any blanks here? Like what, what exactly happens at the, at the heist, at the horse race? So, um, so the guy goes in with a fucking box. Uh, they just let him walk in with his box. This yeah. Present, this huge present. Which has a, it's got a gun in it. Obviously right? a rifle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, uh, yeah, so the sharpshooter kills the horse, right? Causing this huge uh-huh. fucking, like, everyone's going crazy. Um, and in the meantime, I guess Johnny rushes in with a clown mask on. He's wearing like this really, like, iconic, cool-looking clown mask. Have you seen the cover for the Killing on Criterion collection, like the Criterion cover of it? No, I'm looking it up right now, though. It is, it is basically like... Um, it's 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 basically like a, almost like a painting of Sterling Hayden. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it's it's very it's very cool looking. Uh, that uh, I think that whole getup reads in black and white really well. Like mm-hmm. I really like yep. that outfit. Although it is very Joker like to be honest with you, but it is it's also very like I don't know cool and noir and um. So they steal the money. Uh, also the, the Russian guy starts a fight in the bar. Like we kind of mentioned that earlier. Um, 
it's pretty awesome the way he like throws around a lot of the security guards. I like yeah, I like this whole fight uh, fight sequence. Yeah. The, the fighting is much better than uh, in the previous two films. Oh yeah, the fighting much everything is good. Else. Yeah, yeah, he's good. Yeah, um, the the wrestler is good at fighting. He's hairy as fuck. <laughs> yeah, he's like dude. so hairy. Yeah, it's awesome. um so yeah i guess the uh the first the first i guess clue though that we see that like maybe not everything is going to work out for everyone is when we see that the uh the sharpshooter does get does get killed and it is he is sort of hoisted by the the monkey's paw or tiki god whatever you want to call it of the uh the good luck charm ends up being his undoing which i think is like not not the only shred of irony we're going to see in this entire film yeah, I would say uh, it was kind of satisfying to see like him die uh, almost immediately after like calling that nice man the N word. Oh yeah, you remember that? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I will the view the view of the track from where his car is like didn't make sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like the view of it, it like I was trying to figure out. Uh, it didn't look like a racetrack to me. I don't know why. Like it didn't like it didn't make sense in my brain. Yeah, it might not have been, honestly. It might have just yeah. been like, I don't know, them being like, This is good enough. This approximates sort of what we're going for and then just shooting like in an alternate location because they couldn't Yeah. You know, this this film is also made on a I mean it's the fifties, so it's on a, like a three hundred and twenty thousand dollar budget, which is maybe a couple million today i don't know you yeah know? that seems even high for that so i i, I think they are working still with like a shoestring mm. um and the director of photography on this film is a oscar winner um lucian ballard uh okay yeah so they hired him to like i guess elevate the production a little bit uh I wanted to mention this earlier, but some of the best shots in the entire film, I think by by far, are the tracking shots that happen inside of the apartment. So uh, when you yeah. get those great, like, uh, you know, they're moving from room to room to room, almost more rooms than there ever could be in an actual apartment. They're like walking through. It's like the most giant apartment you've ever been in in your entire life somehow. It's like five rooms length. They're always walking and talking through rooms. And like they do this shot a lot. So it just looks really cool. Um, but uh, they'll end up doing it again here. So the uh, the uh, yes. um, the conspirators gather at the apartment where they meet Johnny and divide the money. Before Johnny arrives, Val appears and he holds them up. Now, a shootout ensues, and a badly wounded George emerges as the only man standing. He goes home and shoots Sherry before collapsing. Yes. Oh, the poetry. (laughs) Oh, the poetry. Oh, I wanted to mention, uh, you mentioning the uh, uh, Ballard reminded me that I read about... um, uh, the cinematographers union wouldn't let Kubrick be both director and cinematographer, so he—that's why he hired uh, Ballard. Oh, nice. Uh, and I guess they like uh, argued a lot. They butted heads because Lucian just acted like Kubrick didn't know what he was talking about. At one point, mm. uh, Kubrick asks him to—it's a story I'm just gonna—that I just got from the Life in Pictures documentary, but. 
the uh, the story goes like he asks Lucian to um, you know use a particular lens um, to get a particular type of coverage and put a camera where he says to put it. And Lucian realizing that the shot would actually be much easier if he was able to move the camera back, just changes the whole shot and puts on a lens that would give you comparable coverage. But as uh, James B. Harris, the producer of the film, describes in the documentary, yes, though it is the same coverage, it's a completely different shot. It doesn't give you the same depth of field. So he just thought Kubrick didn't know what he was talking about. And so he just set up the shot completely differently than how Kubrick had asked. And Kubrick saw that he was doing this and walked up to Lucian Ballard and was like, put the camera where I told you with the lens I asked for or get the hell off my set <laughs> was like, I think Damn. his actual <laughs> words he said to him. Um, so, I, I mean, and you can like, so Kubrick being famously like controlling and a megalomaniac, uh, you can kind of see like why he, I don't know, developed such a hard ass attitude yeah, yeah. going because he was getting taken advantage of a lot. Like, uh, and, and, Obviously, that happens. I think to most people who's like start their careers out in in filmmaking is like you got a lot of like people who like just don't respect you, kind of doing like they're being like you know what I'm I'm just gonna do things my way the way I know how to do them and like this kid I'll just let like eat shit. Um, so I feel like Kubrick, you know, is sort of validated in like a lot of ways of like this guy doesn't think I know what I'm talking about, but I absolutely do. In fact, I could be the cinematographer for this film. A similar story is uh, Wes Anderson working with Gene Hackman on uh, Royal Tenenbaums, where Gene Hackman just thought he was a kid, didn't understand what the film was, didn't understand like what huh. Wes Anderson was trying to do, and thus was like a fucking maniac to Wes Anderson, just like tortured him the entire film. And then when you go back and watch it, you're like, oh, wow, he was actually brilliant. Like He knew exactly yeah. what he was doing. Um, Interesting. So uh, that's the end of George Sherry. Probably the most, I think compelling characters in the film uh johnny on his way to the apartment sees george staggering in the street and knows that something went wrong he buys the biggest suitcase he can find to put the money in uh, and struggles to lock it properly that is a huge key to what is going to happen here in just a little bit at the airport johnny and Faye are not allowed to take the case on their flight due to its size instead they must check it as regular luggage johnny reluctantly complies while waiting yeah, to board this was good. Yeah. I love this. Yeah, this is yeah, this is excellent. While waiting to board the plane, the couple watch the suitcase fall off the baggage cart onto the runway after a dog runs out onto the runway, and the baggage yeah. cart driver swerves to avoid it. Break op- breaks open the suitcase and the loose banknotes scattered uh, and then swept away by the backdraft from the aircraft's propellers. Yes. Uh, very cool. Is there another movie that ends this way? Because I was I feel like I've seen this before. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I the, to me this this shot of like the suitcase falling and the money flying out into the air, this that is the killing to me. Is okay. like is that yeah. Maybe I have seen this. Um, or maybe you just seen it in like a compilation of like great scenes and movies or something. Because I feel like this. Oh, this might be yeah. very yeah. This might be. You know what it was good. the other day? I was YouTubing uh, compilations of. Uh, money flying out of suitcases oh so yeah okay well there you go that's yeah it's this film and um at the end of operation dumbo drop (laughs) uh Faye and johnny try to leave the airport immediately but they're unable to hail a cab before the officers are alerted to them Faye urges johnny to flee however he refuses calmly accepting the futility of trying to escape 
and utters the final line, what's the difference? The film ends with two officers approaching to arrest him. And that, my friends, is The Killing by Mr. Flat Stanley Kubrick. Eric, what did you think? Um, The Killing is a movie that I like. It's good. <laughs> I, I definitely, I definitely enjoyed it. Yeah. It was uh, I it's actually like a huge step up, definitely from Fear and Desire. I did really like the more I think about it, uh, uh, Killer's Kiss. Right. But this to me just finally feels like okay, we're watching like a real, a real movie. Like those two movies don't feel like real professional films to me yeah uh this to me just feels like a movie from the from the 50s that uh is just like a normal 50s movie that uh yeah i could definitely see like after reading about how influential this movie was on reservoir dogs and uh, i'm sure a lot of other uh, uh films and directors um yeah it, it's it's one of those things where i kind of did have to keep my brain in the headspace of like this is probably the first or one of the first movies to do a lot of these things. Um, so it was interesting to watch in, in, in that way. And I was actually, uh, I did feel like genuine suspense, like when they were uh, trying to like check the, the luggage uh, towards the end there. It was like very suspenseful for me. Um, I think this movie is like pretty funny, mm-hmm. uh, intentionally or not, especially Sherry's character is very funny and her dynamic with uh, her uh, husband, who I forget the character's name, but um, I really liked her. Uh, yeah, I, I, I give this, uh, as, as Roger Ebert would say, uh, Two thumbs up, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, um, yeah, I agree with all that stuff. I, I think this film actually holds up like pretty well today. I, I think that it holds up better than some of the other Kubrick films that we're going to watch, particularly Lolita, I think is not going to hold up as well, not because of the content, but just because like it's like high society for the 60s. Like mm. I think that this noir attitude and this type of dialect it just for some reason it's it's kind of timeless even though it's very 1930s 1940s esque it's like mm. we love we love to see stuff like this today i think you were right when you know at the opening of the show and you know we talk not just about oceans 11 but like i feel like the movie like brick adopts a lot of like the language the type of dialect yeah. they use in this yeah. like people love throwback noir heist shit Yes. And this does it very well. Like this is like a really great example that you can point to if someone's like, "What's a good heist movie? What's a good uh, old noir film?" Yeah, you know, this is this is one that you could always recommend. It's got everything in it. It's got like the the roguish uh, thief, you know, the botching the job. It's got like the the meathead, the squirrely guy. It's it's got like every like type of tropish uh, character that you could want. I think Kubrick brings to the table like that's a, a, a style that um, is sort of unparalleled. Like none of those other heist films really look like this. This looks particularly good. Um, not a lot of static shots, which I think is like the camera is kind of moving a lot in this film, which I think is is really interesting and good. You can notice like the the shots that don't age as well 
are the ones where the yeah. camera isn't moving a ton because that's sort of how films were made. I guess because cameras were so heavy, you'd have a lot of like static shots that almost look like television. Um, so I, I, I really like the character of George and Sherry. Uh, I also mm-hmm. agree. I thought they were great. I like Johnny also, but he's more of just like a vanilla-ish, I guess. Um, whereas George and Sherry have a lot of... They're very dynamic. I, I You actually don't see it, that relationship done a lot in film, I, I feel like. Yeah. Uh, not not enough anyway. It's it's very yeah. it's, it's a funny dynamic and I and I really enjoyed uh, Sherry's dialogue for sure. And I thought George played well off of her. I to me this is a, this is one of my favorite Kubrick films. I mean, I don't know where I would put it in the list, but it is it's up there. Like I I think it's really good. I do think it's a lot different than I like this movie for different reasons than I like other Kubrick films. Um, and we'll get into like that stuff a little bit later. Uh, but it's still very it's still very good and very fun it's it's like a kind of a fun romp and i think the ending is really cool i like i like that ending i think the ending is like sort of i don't know the metaphor of like you fucking um you can't take it with you kind of a thing like the irony like that just like uh drips off of um a dog like an animal like coming out and like fucking up your your animal heist you know is like very yeah. fun i think that the money um rep- as as like just a what what do they call it a um uh the maltese falcon is an example of a uh a re- not a red herring but like um that mm. unattainable thing that that every heist movie wants but it doesn't really matter what it is um, sure yeah you know what i'm talking about like the suitcase from pulp fiction it like doesn't matter right. what's inside of it it's it's more about it's a MacGuffin. i, th- I believe is what it's called um yes uh yeah from from super bad right right yeah uh you have michael Sarah, uh you have jonah hill and then you have MacGuffin. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so uh so yeah, that's gonna that's gonna wrap us up here for uh, yeah. for the killing. Um, I would definitely, I would definitely see this movie. I'd definitely recommend it, and you can watch it now streaming on the Criterion uh, streaming service, or you can buy yes. it on the Criterion if you if you. So I choose. watched it for free on Amazon. Oh, that's uh, great! Prime, it's on Amazon. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, how um, much is the Criterion subscription, by the way? I believe I it's eleven ninety nine a month. Okay. All right. Um, I don't so, know. Yeah, I don't know uh, if it's worth it, but I've seen two films that for this podcast were streaming on the Criterion. So right, yeah. And you normally order like film uh, reels of the film. Normally, you spend like thousands of dollars. Yeah, normally like original. Yeah. yeah, and I don't actually have a film projector. What I do is I take a flashlight and I look <laughs> at every single frame. Yeah, to give myself a picture. Yeah. Um. So, Jeremy, and by the way, just one quick plug. Uh, you really should check out our Patreon. At least try it out for a month. It's patreon.com slash Eric and Jeremy. Um, a lot of fun shit going on there. There's other tiers, too, where you can, like, force us to uh, do an episode about anything you want, which I think Brian has another one coming up. Oh, uh, great. So I have to talk to him. Brian, if you're listening, and we know you're listening, mm-hmm. uh, Start thinking about that that next uh, that next movie. He he had us watch Tusk last time, which was great. Yeah. Um, 
And I this is something that I found in my research, Jeremy, that I would just like to to kind of close out on uh before the of course the classic sign off line. Uh this is a Amazon uh description of a R.L. Stein book from his Fear Street series, which is titled Killer's Kiss. Uh so the description is Delia and uh, Karina are always competing from getting the best grades to being the most popular to dating the cutest guys. They always fight for the top spot this year. They both want Vincent, the hottest guy at shady side high (laughs) (laughs) Karina's determined to get Vincent. She'll do whatever it takes. And if she can't have him, she'll make sure no one else can either, including Delia. Folks, thanks for listening, and uh, (laughs) as always, Norma, I'll see you in my dreams. Ooh.